The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, February 24th, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Today, Donald Trump gave a speech to CPAC. I don't want to say it was vague and cliched, but believe me, believe me, it was vague. But I want to talk about comments he made beforehand, comments which were much more substantive and much more alarming than the usual make America great from fake news stuff that you hear out of Trump. Here he is talking about our nuclear capabilities. A dream would be that no country would have nukes. But if countries are going to have nukes, we're going to be at the top of the pack. All right, let me give the warhead stats to you. Active warheads, USA, 1920. Russia, 1600. Everyone else combined, 450. So we're winning. That would, that would argue that we're winning. Now, of course, if you add in the ones that are not active, that are stockpiled, or simply ready to be destroyed, Russia pulls ahead of the United States. They have about a thousand more of those. And other countries like uh, China, they also have, China also have some warheads. But for the most part, the United States has either the most warheads, just if you count them, if you consider capability, destructive capability, United States is far and away ahead. If you consider necessity to do the job, yeah, it doesn't matter. Once you can destroy the world, I don't know, 40, 50, 60 times over, you can stop counting. Like having the most nuclear warheads is like having the most thermostats to measure the temperature. You might want to put them in two or three different locations, but you don't really need a whole field of thermostats to tell you how hot it is. Not even Dr. Strangelove covets so many more nukes than we need. It is infantile. Gotta have the most nukes. Although maybe you're saying, look, this is just typical Trumpian bluster rhetoric, something he doesn't mean, you know, the whole literally versus seriously thing. And maybe it is. But remember, right after the election, we were told, ah, you took him literally, not seriously. That was a mistake. But then after he began implementing policies, it turns out the mistake was not to have taken him literally, right? All these things he said he was going to do, he did. Like the Muslim ban and deportations and transgender bathrooms. Wait, he didn't even say he was going to do that. He just channeled his inner pence. But actually, on foreign affairs, there is a lot of distance between his rhetoric and his reality. I think it's just because it's the area that he knows the least. So he'll say something and then adults will say, well, he can't really do that. Couple examples. He backed off Taiwan recognition. Tillerson and Pence, they were sent to reassure NATO. Nikki Haley wants to continue our policy at the UN of sanctioning Russia over Crimea. But this area, nuclear weapons, there is no policy more frightening if Trump is being literal than the weapons that are literally able to destroy the earth so many times over. On the show today, I spiel about an aspect of Trump's rhetoric that's grading, 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 so grading, bothers, bothers some people, but it might be effective. It could work. I don't want to say it works, but it works. It works, folks. It works. But first, as a massive apology for all these Trump words I'm laying on you, I offer this tonic, this salve. George Saunders, his new novel is Lincoln in the Bardo. It is quite an achievement of historical insight, literary form, and humanism. So just just like Trump. In 
February of 1862, William Wallace Lincoln, one of the president's sons, died in the White House. That much is true, historical fact. The anguish of Abe Lincoln and his wife, Mary Todd Lincoln, was understandably um, almost indescribable. Although I would say that America has never benefited more from the anguish of one person than they have from the anguish of Abraham Lincoln. I think all that he went through probably crafted his uh, statesmanship and insight. But there was Willie Lincoln. Uh, Soon his brother would also die. And from this came a fact that Abraham Lincoln visited his crypt. And from this fact comes this book, this novel called Lincoln in the Bardot. It is about historical facts, but it also blends in ghosts, the liminal state between the living and the dead, and a contemplation on everything from grief to forgiveness to self-realization. Its author is George Saunders, and he joins me now. Hello. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for writing this book. I like that summary. We're just going to put that on the back cover, the paperback. (laughs) We got to condense it a little. More clear or less. You're you're struggling with the same thing I am on this little tour. Like, how how do you summarize this without... Yeah, and it's not like you... you, It's The danger isn't giving away plot points. This book isn't necessarily about plot points. I have to tell you how I experienced your book. I knew nothing about it. I knew that you were out with a book. I said, let's definitely book them. No pun intended. And on the cover, it does say a novel, Lincoln in the Bardo, a novel. Is it Bardo or Bardo? I think it's Bardo. Bardo, Lincoln in the Bardo. I read the first chapter. I say, what is this? I read the second chapter. It's quite different from the first chapter. I'm, I'm saying to myself... George Saunders is exactly the kind of guy who would call a collection of short stories a novel and try to trick me. Because I do think, and then I went back and read the press notes, and I I don't always like to do it, but I kind of needed the orientation. Would you recommend that for readers, that they know a little bit about structure? It is kind of hard. Well, I mean, what I love is that they had just the experience you did. I kind of like the idea of getting in there and maybe, uh, you know, hitting your head on a little bit and being confused and then coming back. And what I I hope, I mean, my, my, my goal was that the early difficulty would payoff later once once the book teaches you how to read it yes then it's getting you in the places that you couldn't have gone otherwise do you like books like that like a clockwork orange or books that teach you how to you know you have to learn how to read it well i like it especially if it's organic like Mm -hmm. if it's just to be tricky i don't like it so much but if for example foster wallace in the footnotes yeah i think that that worked that was him that was his brain that's right and even when you're resisting it it works you know and he and you know that he's working with you so Mm -hmm. that's beautiful i always have this tick in fiction i kind of don't like the moment of obvious reveal like I, in my earlier books where there were theme parks i never liked to use the word theme park like because yeah. my thought is people who say work there don't think of it as oh i'm going to the theme park it's just work you know so here a lot of that was to try to kind of get around a couple of big chunks like i didn't want to say the ghost you know uh so so for me if it's organic and if it kind of makes sense from the point of view of the characters and if it engages me deeper with you as a reader even if that's a little bit of you being sort of pissed off or something that's all right as long <laughs> right. as it works out all right in the end so know? that's that's why this book had to be written after all your acclaim because if you're a first-time novelist who no, no one ever heard of they read two chapters like okay this guy's obviously insane yeah <laughs> they yeah. might toss it yeah or you know or like one of the things i think you know in movies sometimes you, you see uh, a couple of maybe three ambiguous images that don't seem to relate yeah and already your mind is kind of going what the fuck and it's it's kind of working with it so i think the trick is to not obviously not go too long with that mm-hmm. where the person just closes the book if you go 10 minutes with that in the movie, it's effective. If you go 20 minutes, it's an yeah, art well, film. Yeah, well, at some point, what the director has done is fail to remember that you're on the other side watching. Exactly. You know, so that, I, for me, that's the whole thing about reading and writing. It's an intimate connection 
between you and me, and m- part of the game is me guessing where you are. Mm-hmm. And even if where you are is aggravated or confused, as long as I know that, we c- we're still working together a little right. bit. The, the historical things, was it a blend of actual and invention? It was. And what happened was, at first the first big idea was, oh, maybe since I want to transmit this history, instead of just running it through a kind of bland third-person me, you know, mm-hmm. let's just put them in directly. Just sampling is what came to mind. Of course we sample that. So I did a whole thing where I typed it up, typed a bunch of stuff up and clipped it with scissors and all that. So every so often I just get an impulse to make something up. Yeah. Not, not to, not to throw anybody off the trail, but to throw them on the trail a little bit. So I don't know the percentage, but there's a number of those that are, that I just took the liberty to invent. Yeah. Here, I'll read a couple of the names, a couple of the texts or faux texts that we hear from. There's something called Behind the Scenes or 30 Years a Slave and Four Years in the White House by Elizabeth Keckley. Elizabeth Keckley. Yeah, she's, she's was, like this amazing biographer of the, of the yeah. Lincoln, African-American, uh, the, the seamstress for Mary Lincoln. Right. The stuff about the father and the son stuff, the losing the child, there's a line in it that may, just maybe something you made up because it's perfect or it would even be more perfect if it's from the historical record, describing Willie Lincoln as the kind of child you'd imagine that a child would be before you had that's a child. A true, that's a real one. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. What, what were the ones that were that are Saunders? Oh, I can't, I wouldn't tell you that. No, <laughs> you know, I have somewhere I have a bibliography that okay. I was keeping, you know, and at this point I don't remember, but I know, you know, one of the things that was really interesting, it kind of like told me something about my shit was, um, in the first pass, the ones that I was making up were real good. They were yeah. really flamboyant and a little yeah. contemporary. And then you're like, you know, that's- they probably seemed more, sorry to interrupt, no. but you know, the thing where we, where, a, um, a filmmaker or a novelist will set his piece in the past, but it will sound like our version of what we think their version sounds right, like. Right, right, right. Yeah. Forsooth. <laughs> Forsooth, right. And fake, Shakespeare, fake Shakespeare yeah. sounds more Shakespeare with the yeah. words that end yeah. uh, with the TH. And my favorite example of this is that TV series, That 70s Show, which if you watched a show from the 70s, it doesn't look like that, but that's a distillation of what the 70s would seem like to right. people making a show in the 90s about the 70s. But you know that there's, Henry James has a quote that I won't be able to- Thank you for elevating it. Above yeah, yeah, that yeah, yeah, show, yeah, yeah, yeah. As the Fonz used to say, <laughs> uh, Henry, Henry James, there's, he, he talked about historical novels and I, I, I can't even call a quote but the gist of it is what a bunch of nonsense to even think you could write a historical novel because if you go back to 1840 you would have to literally crawl out of all the knowledge that you have including the ambient stuff you don't even know you have yeah. to think in a totally different way so it's always a, it's always like a simulacrum of, of what yes. it is and but in those quotes that i made up they actually tended a little more to the comic because i was a little this book made me nervous because it's not as funny as my other stuff or funny in a different mode so in it one pass all those things were sticking out like sore thumbs so then i thought okay so maybe in another level of fiction is to suppress your own cleverness and try to make those things blend you know so i you know hopefully um what you were talking about with not maybe being true a tibetan scholar would say well you got this or that wrong there's sort of an echo with a historian might say that too. You didn't want to actually accurately portray the history as much as maybe your impression of the history or what the actual history gave you as a jumping off point. Well, even I might even go a step further and say it, you're in a work of fiction, I think you're not supposed to know what your game is. Okay. You know? Well, except that at the end, I think you're trying to trying to take the reader to some, and here we could put in all kinds of transcendent you know, some some space that they didn't know they're going to. Maybe you didn't know you're going to, and it's kind of ass kicking, and it's kind of transformative, 
That's it. So, so in other words, along the way, you don't want to have any, any other loyalties. Mm-hmm. To history, I don't really give a shit. To uh, certain religious traditions, I'm actually using them, hopefully respectfully. But so, so just like if you're writing a song, the point is not to showcase that this is what a piano sounds like, or you're trying to do something and you don't know what it is. You yeah. know? So and that's, so I found it when I got into the history stuff too, I ended up being pretty free with that and pre-inventive because that's what, it's a dramatic machine that, you know. How much historical work did you do uh, around Lincoln for this book? A lot. I mean, a lot in a kind of hobbyist way. Like when I would be done writing, I just kind of, instead of watching TV, I just read a bunch of Lincoln. And uh, I guess my thought was- There's a lot out there. Oh my God, (laughs) 30,000 books or something. Yeah. So my thought was, you know, read as many uh, things in 19th century voice, read Lincoln as much as I could. You know, in that moment in the book, when you need to do some improv, all of that stuff is there for you and you just blurt out whatever comes. How is it, 30,000 books, how is it that he is so aggrandized and valued in America, rightly so, and yet we elect Donald Trump? How could well, both those that's things That's the million be dollar question. Yeah. I mean, yeah, but you know, the one thing I found out during this, they actually in his life, they hated him. Oh, there, yeah. There's a book called The Unpopular Mr. Lincoln by this guy, Larry Tagg. And it's, um, if you ever want to get your, your skin thick, you read this, it's full of the cruelest things that, and I quote some of it in here. Yeah. But I mean, they- Oh God, was, around, they were so cruel around criticizing him for having a party as his son yeah. lay dying, which is a mistake in retrospect, but God, yeah, were they yeah, cruel. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and about, I mean, everything and, and, de- and death threats, I mean, there were like trolls and people who were going to come and blow his brains out and so on. Yeah. So, and I think, I mean, what happened is at some point after he, got, after he died, especially, there was a great- turnaround and he was this American saint. But in his life, you know, they, they were rightly calling him, you know, sort of a dictator. He was, he, he suspended, suspended the Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think we're getting a pretty cleaned up version of who he was. And an answer to that might be, I find it with Jefferson, that Jefferson becomes the Jefferson that any side wants. So blood of the Patriots, Jefferson, or, you know, uh, Declaration of Independence, Jefferson. He's a little bit of a, a Rosetta Stone. Lincoln wasn't, but people think he is. And of course, if yeah. you're a Republican, you have to adapt him. And one insight I get about how to manage that cognitive dissidence came from an essay you wrote for The New Yorker, which was amazing, where Thanks. you went out and interviewed a lot of people who were voting for Trump. You did a few things in that essay. I want to talk about them. But you'd find that they were so often very decent people, especially when confronted with sympathetic real-life examples, and yet they were able to compartmentalize that and still say, yes, but Trump embodies uh, my decency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I I think actually, you know, that piece is still working in my head because it was really, really hard. I I really struggle with it. One thing I didn't know about then, actually, uh, to my discredit, that I didn't understand was this, how extreme the right wing the right right we mean yes like uh because i would ask the people it was clear that we were speaking from different mythological so we talk right past each other so i'd say you know kind of pathetically well what do you where do you get your news and they'd always say the same thing they would always say well uh i get my news from all over not just fox and that would kind of at that time set me back like well, well we really all right well now i'm realizing in retrospect that they meant fox as sort of the center oh yeah and their stuff. I get to, it from the, Fox and Breitbart yeah. and Newsmax and all yeah. these places. You know, most journalists now have this, well, certainly you do, this dual burden of not only being the anthropologist explaining Trump voters to us, the non-Trump voters, but now there's this burden of, no, and what's the new way of communicating to them? I don't know. That's yeah. a totally different question. Yeah. 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 And there was one great insight in the story 
where you talked about how you were in a graduate program and you, this was you describing everyone around you really was much smarter, you said. So you've, you conducted this mythology that they were all kind of out to get you yeah. and all cheating you. Yeah. Great insight. It's exactly what's going on with, so, with Trump and so many Trump yeah. voters. The two things I would say about that is it sort of destroys the idea of never saying I in journalism. Because if you had just said Trump does this thing where... He thinks everyone's out to get him. I've heard that a million times. It doesn't go as far as to you lay out. Now we identify with you. Maybe we put ourselves in that situation. Say, yeah, I've done that. That yeah. is a phenomenon. Yeah, that, that's a privilege I have because I, I came to this. First, I had a fiction thing going on and I got drafted. So yeah. so all those nonfiction pieces, my basic stance is, you know, asshole goes somewhere. So, I, <laughs> so I'll go in with some lame notion and then let the world disabuse me of it. And that gives you the opportunity to slide your own experience. But that, that for me was um, a period where, you know, I, I really felt so outgunned. And, you know, your mind does weird things when you feel that way. It's very difficult to see yourself as a bottom dweller or somebody who's made mistakes even. Mm -hmm. somebody. And so then, you, of course, you, sh you shift the blame. And I thought, yeah, that actually, you know, the real story here, I mean, in the ultimate way is that the money went up. I think starting in the 80s, maybe this, we know that it yeah. went up. Yeah. So if you imagine, you know, uh, America as a hillside community, all the oxygen went up to the peak. So all these people in the middle and lower middle are in this sort of anaerobic environment, which makes you anxious and it makes you pissed off. And actually the weird, the, the great triumph for the Trump movement is that we, the progressive people, we knew that, you know, and he kind of swooped in and yeah. made this counter narrative and ran off with it. Although, you know, so I used to criticize the George W. Bush thing of, I mean what I say and I say what I mean. I used to criticize that as a little intractable, but I would trade that for what we yeah, have going the, now. <laughs> okay. So they believe these things about him, like he speaks his mind and he won't back down, but also that he'll put his beliefs into action. Right. Um, mm. There's something they don't believe about him, like he's kind to people. They right. don't really believe that. Yeah. But- if you show that that's not true, then that's the area. Even if we have two different sets mm -hmm. of beliefs and get our news from disparate places, yeah. you know, a demonstration that he, you know, if you, I could see the campaign commercial where it's like, we'll build the wall to Mexico. And then maybe there are stretches without a wall or right. I'm bringing back American jobs. And they show the stat with the trend line going the, down. If you just say lie, 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 yeah, 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 lie, yeah, yeah. well, you know, something I read, <laughs> not during, very elevated. <laughs> yeah, you know, but yeah. during, during this, I, I read something and I can't remember the source, but the idea, it kind of dropped my jaw, dropped my, dropped my, dropped my jaw. It was not my drawers, dropped my jaw. It was so simple was it's emotional. When I would meet the Trump supporters and we get arguing, uh, the facts didn't get in the way for either one of us. It was just a, a rigid stance that, that really was weirdly emotional. And I, I've often thought, I, I can't support this, but I often thought, you know, back in the caveman days, there's a tribe of 10 people. And let's just say five are conservative and five are liberal by, by neurology. Mm -hmm. uh, that's actually- Share the rocks, keep the rocks. <laughs> no, yeah, no, so, it is. And so yeah. a, tri a, tribe of, <laughs> a tribe approaches across the, the prairie and the, the liberals go, oh, wow, they probably have some cool new technology. And the conservatives go, they're coming to kill us. Now, if, you, if they're amiable and they like each other, then the, the two circles intersect. And they're, mm -hmm. they, what do they have to do? Well, they have to look closer. Because they they can't agree, so they have to wait a little longer. Somebody has to go out and talk, and it's it's smart. That's a good way to do it because sometimes they are coming to kill you. Yeah. And so, yeah. so I think what's happened with our cave is that those uh, the, they hate each other. The five hate the other five. So strangely, what's going to happen is that tribe's going to arrive before anybody makes a decision. You know. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. that so that's da it's dangerous actually. The the lack of communication and the 
the forgetfulness about a positive mode of communication is making a danger that I think we don't quite feel yet. Yeah. And the and the book, by the way, when you came in, this place was a buzz with. I'm I'm a third of the way through it. I'm halfway through it. Everyone's loving it. As long, they have to keep going though. They, that, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's I'm good. a third of the way through it, and that's good enough. <laughs> but they just started it this week. It just yeah. came out. Lincoln in the Bardo, George Saunders. Thanks Thank so much. Thank you so much, man. Thank you. And now the spiel. Today, Donald Trump offered up to CPAC his policy insights, his worldview, his opinion of the media. But more than that, he offered up CPAC as the source for all the Trumpism that came later. Addressing a CPAC conference many years ago in what Trump said was his first political speech, that's what gave him the positive feedback and enabled him to become the leader he is today. I'll never forget it, really. Uh, I had... Very little notes and even less preparation. So when you had practically no notes and no preparation and then you leave and everybody was thrilled, I said, I think I like this business. There, what Trump was doing was flattering his audience. It's all because of you. And that's one of his techniques. Conscious or simply ingrained, Trump's words are pretty effective in generating the intended effect on his audience. He is a plain speaker. He uses vivid visual images and he commits to his words with a showman zeal. So ISIS isn't just evil. They drown people in cages or Hillary Clinton's Russian reset didn't simply fail. There was this button, this cheap plastic button. Do you remember the button, the stupid button? And we fixate on the button and the abstraction. I mean, Russian policy, what is that? Or even the idea of a Russian reset, it doesn't really mean anything, but a button does, a cheap plastic button. She brought a button to a knife fight. And all of this is a form of rhetoric, but it seems to skim past us. Like when we talk about presidential oratory, it doesn't even seem to qualify, but it does in a way. What's the point of oratory or rhetoric than speech intended to convince? And he's good at convincing at least his followers. It's why he's always going on about the plasticity of a button. Maybe, maybe he does that just because it's a crutch, because he's kind of a lazy speaker and he can't help himself. But whatever the answer is about why he does it, it's also true that it works. And you know what else works? What works, what really works? Repetition works. The pundits, you're right, they had an idea. The pundits didn't think we'd win. The consultants that suck up all that money, oh, they suck it up, they're so good. They're not good at politics, but they're really good at sucking up people's money. And this. We are fighting the fake news. It's fake, phony, fake. Again. In a movement the likes of which, actually, the world has never seen before. There's never been anything like this. There's been some movements, but there's never been anything like this. I was inspired by Maria Konnikova's Friday spiel where she talked about how Trump's lies just really overrun our defenses. And the repetition does a similar thing. Now, a more sophisticated thinker or speaker actually finds it hard to be so simple. And a more effective and sophisticated listener, like you or I, we don't like it. But a speaker who fashions himself or herself a good speaker, they'll hold back 
from just saying the same thing over and over. They want to soar to heights. They want to paint beautiful word pictures. There is no part of Trump that yearns for that. He repeats it because he has a far simpler brain than the other orator we're talking about. But that brain works. It connects, again, to his audience. Now, other presidents knew the power of repetition. Poets know the power of repetition. But imagine if they talked like Trump. We'd get things like, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Fear. You gotta fear fear. Fear is the thing to fear. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. It's your country, your country, folks. And that's the question you should be asking about your country, not another country. That's the ask, your country. Mr. Gorbachev, bring down this wall. This one. Bring it down. Gotta bring it down. That's what you gotta do to this wall. Bring it down. Let's take this thought. Here's a thought he wanted to convey. Uh, not about that wall, but about the wall he's going to build on the southern border. He wanted to say, we will build the wall and bring it in ahead of schedule. Here's how long it took him to convey those two fairly straight ahead points. Oh, we're going to build the wall. Don't worry about it. We're building the wall. We're building the wall. In fact, it's going to start soon. Way ahead of schedule. Way ahead of schedule. way, way, way ahead of schedule. It's going to start very soon, General. And the thing is, his way of talking works. It works. It works. It's not unworking. It's working, folks. Got to tell you, it's working. We heard the repetition in his bromide against fake media. We played that before. But he went back to this point again. But I am only against the fake news media or press. Fake. Fake. They have to lead that word. Which brings up another point. The president will always be the subject of stories, and the press is a means for the president to achieve his goal. But this president thinks getting into a story is the goal. I have often said that the only reason he wanted to win the job was because that would mean the polls on election night would say that he's more popular. Polls, polls, the polls, they come out with these polls and everybody was so surprised. How torturing for him that he lost the popular vote at the polls, but he still has to do the job. Some say, when it comes to Trump, pay attention to deeds, not words. Others say that words hint at the deeds, and he's the president. His words have direct impact. There's another school that says the words are mockable, they're risible, but the deeds are actually hurting people. I say the words hurt too. And what hurts the most is that they're not hurting him at least among the audience he's talking to. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson is reading a book about Lincoln when he was a contestant on Art Fleming's Jeopardy, Lincoln with Don Pardo. Chris Berube, just producer, is finding out about the time that Lincoln starred in a spinoff from Taxi with Mary Lou Henner, Lincoln with Elaine Nardo. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, knows that Lincoln during his life always refused to attend step classes or use the elliptical machine. Lincoln versus cardio. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, got wind of a pilot. It was recasting Tattoo from Fantasy Island. And in some countries, this show was marketed as Lincoln E. Ricardo. The gist We're funding a new musical, Lincoln as a Puerto Rican gang leader whose sister falls in love with a rival, Lincoln as Bernardo.
Umperu Deperu Duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>